Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 46 is where we're going to begin here in just uh, a little bit. Uh, I think it's universal, I hope it's universal, that all good <laughs> people enjoy Christmas music, right? We all like it. So, but I'm always curious about the conversation as to when is the right time to start listening to Christmas music. So just out of curiosity, how many of you have a hard and fast rule, no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving? Anyone have that rule? Uh, you're proud of it. You raise your hand because you want other people to learn from you. That's what you want. <laughs> how many of you say, bah humbug to that, I've been listening since before Thanksgiving? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, before Halloween, anyone been listening to before <laughs> Halloween? Take a look at these people. They are strange <laughs> and unusually chipper, uh, but uh, that's a great. I love that conversation. Uh, you know, the season and our music go hand in hand together, and, and that's the way it's always been. The church has always had a catalog of songs related to the coming of Christ, and we know this from Luke. In Luke's gospel, he uses four different songs to tell the story of Christ's coming to us. And in Luke's musical, his singers are Mary and Zechariah and the angels and a man named Simeon. They all have leading roles in this musical. Mary's song that we're going to study this morning in Latin, it's called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies, my, my soul glorifies the Lord. Zechariah's song, we'll look at it next week. It's called the Benedictus. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed, Benedictus. Uh, the angel's song to the shepherds on that night. Gloria in excelsis. Glory to God in the highest. And then an often overlooked part of the Christmas story and an important part, a man named Simeon sings a song that in Latin is called Nunc Dimittis, or Now Dismiss. The Lord can now dismiss His servant. So I want to encourage you to be with us every Sunday in this Christmas season as we dive into each one of these songs. And Christmas is an easy invite to a neighbor, a friend, a loved one. Uh, leverage the season to bring someone with you to church this Christmas. Uh, now, there is a common conversation that takes place this time of year, especially among Christians, almost exclusively among Christians, the conversation is about how we can keep Christ in Christmas. And in recent years, there's been a major push in various circles and even at a national level for us to keep Christ in Christmas by saying Merry Christmas. And so the war on Christmas is fought in part uh, in the greetings we give to one another. Now, just for the record, I think it's right that if you celebrate Christmas, you should wish cheerfully a Merry Christmas to other people. You shouldn't use Merry Christmas like a hammer to beat up on, on secular people. Merry Christmas! That doesn't translate. So, but we should wish a, a cheery Merry Christmas to people, and if they observe a different holiday this season, it's okay to be a Christian and wish them uh, greetings related to their holiday. But this is not how we keep Christ in Christmas. Keeping Christ in Christmas is not about our greetings. It is about our worship. That's what we learned from Mary this morning. It's easy and it's cheap to say Merry Christmas and feel like you're doing something monumental. 
what really takes energy, what takes effort, what makes a difference, what shows that we understand what Christmas is all about. It's when you and I are caught up in worship, worship of the God who sent His Son, the Son who is the centerpiece of all worship for all creation. When you and I join in that song, that's when you and I are making a difference in this season. When Mary received news that she was going to be the birth mother to the one who would bring salvation once and for all to God's people, she became a worshiper. Mary writes an incredible song and sings this incredible piece of music to exalt God and to worship Him for what He's done in her life and for the sake of all of His people. And in her worship, Mary sets an example for you and I to follow. It is so easy for us to miss the meaning of Christ's birth and to get caught up in the frantic busyness of the season. So easy for us to lose sight as to what Christmas is all about. I saw an example of this yesterday in our back parking lot. Um, We have some attractive trees that apparently to the locals make for great wreath material. Now, we have some church members that ask permission and come and cut some limbs, and that's cool. But these people... They just, they rolled in and they creeped in the parking lot real slow. And we see everything out of our kitchen window. We see everything. (laughs) They creep real slow. They park for a bit. And then they they pulled up to these trees kind of back over by the dumpster. Husband and wife jump out. He starts hacking (laughs) at these little branches. And she's just scooping and throwing them in the back of the SUV. And then he scrambles around, jumps in the driver's seat, and and they take off. So I stood on our back porch and I just waved at them as they went across... (laughs) the parking lot. It's easy to miss what all this is about when you got wreaths on the brain, you got gatherings on the brain, decorating, you've been on Pinterest more this month than ever in the rest of the year. It's just so manic. So you and I have to fight to hear Mary's song. We have to understand the meaning behind what is happening here in the coming of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that meaning, then we'll become worshipers. Then we'll become the kind of people who act and live in the reality of what Christmas truly means. So my purpose in preaching this text today is to turn you into a worshiper for this season. Not just a song singer, a worshiper from the depths of who you are in love with the one who came to bring salvation, a worshiper of God. So we become worshipers when we understand God's mighty acts on our behalf. Here's the setting so far in Luke 1. So at this point in Luke chapter 1, an angel has visited a man named Zechariah. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have never been able to have a baby. And the angel makes a promise to Zechariah, your wife, is going to have a child. Zechariah doesn't believe it. Because of this, he's struck mute. We're going to study this story more next week. I love it. It's a great story. Well, Elizabeth has a cousin named Mary. Mary also has a holy visitor. The angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says to her, you're going to be with child. This child is is, uh, from the Holy Spirit. This child uh, is going to be the son of the Most High. The announcement comes to Mary. Mary's response to the angel is, May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel leaves her. And then Mary packs her bag and she takes off to go stay with her cousin Elizabeth, who is now pregnant, and her husband Zechariah, 
who has nothing to say in all of this until a little bit later, all right? So she shows up on Elizabeth's doorstep. Elizabeth pronounces this blessing on Mary, and then Mary writes her song. I want you to follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This beautiful piece of music gives you and I three reasons to worship at Christmas time. Three reasons that Mary clearly states in, involving God's actions towards his people. These reasons rooted in God's actions on our behalf are the fuel for our worship. Let me share those with you. The first reason you and I have to worship at Christmas time is this. We worship because of God's grace to us. You and I worship because of God's grace to us. Verses 46 through 49, Mary lays this out. Now, Mary's song can easily be divided into two parts. And the first half of that song, Mary focuses on herself. She focuses on what God has done for her and is doing through her. In the second half of the song, Mary pulls the camera back to look at what God has done for all his people. So on the front end of this song, Mary's focusing on her role in the coming of Christ and God's grace to her. So who's the main subject of Mary's song? The main subject of her song is not herself. Mary's not singing about herself, although she's in the song. The main subject is God. He's the prime actor. And she makes the purpose of this song clear in the opening line in verse 46. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary tells us she worships God with her soul and her spirit in this instance. In other words, every part of her being is involved in this exaltation of God. Mary is all in with the Lord in this scene. In verse 46, Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord. So she's exalting him, lifting him up in praise. In verse 47, she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So she rejoices in him. She's filled with joy and worship at the thing God has done. And what is the thing God has done that brings about such a response from Mary? Well, she gives us a hint in a name she uses for God at the end of verse 47. She says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Isn't it interesting that at this point in the gospel story, in this Christmassy part of the story, Mary calls God her Savior? Because it's not Easter yet. 
The cross hasn't happened. There's no empty tomb. No Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. That hasn't happened yet. But still, Mary says God is her Savior because of what He's done, because of this baby that she carries. And along with that, it's interesting, when when Mary sings of God here in this passage, all the verbs that she gives Him are past tense. She doesn't talk about what God will do. And what He will do is incredible and amazing and necessary and part of the story. But just with her pregnancy alone and the nature of the one she carries in her womb, she says, salvation is here. She rejoices, she glorifies, soul and spirit all in because the Savior has come and she carries him in her womb. Now, Mary continues in verse 48. And she begins to describe more of God's actions and his thoughts. And in verse 48, she says this of God, He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So who's the servant Mary's speaking of in verse 48? Well, it's it's herself. She's the servant in view. And what does she mean when she says God's been mindful of her humble state? Well, I, I don't take the phrase humble state to be a reference to Mary's character, although I would agree, and I think we all would agree, that Mary is certainly a humble woman. But when she speaks of her humble state, I take Mary to be speaking of her circumstances. She is a peasant. She is impoverished. She is powerless. She is a woman who does not have equal rights in this culture. There's a lot of things about Mary that we would look at her and say, oh, you, you live in a humble state. And that's true. You see, the reality is this. If you and I had to pick someone to carry the Christ child in her womb, Mary might not make our top ten. We might not want a peasant from no-name Nazareth with no power, no pedigree, nothing to her name. We might not want someone like that. We might want someone with more of a social media platform, someone with a better proven track record, someone with a few more miles on the odometer perhaps. You and I might not pick Mary, but God picks Mary. And you know why? Grace. Not her resume. Not because she is perfect, not because she's better than all the rest. It is purely God's grace by which he chooses Mary. In his infinite, magnificent wisdom, he chooses Mary as an act of incredible, amazing grace. And just as God's grace comes to Mary, his servant in a humble state, God's also mindful of you and I in our humble state. In other words, he knows what you're going through. He knows you're hurt. He knows all the reasons why other people wouldn't pick you for the thing, for their team, for the deed. He knows your condition, your sorrow, your doubts and fears. And you might ask, well, if God knows all my hurt, then why doesn't he do something about it? And according to Mary, he has. God's answer is his son, Jesus. He's mindful of the humble state of his servant. And now there's a baby that's going to be born that's going to change everything. And Jesus changes everything. By his birth, his death, his resurrection, he gives everlasting life to those who were formerly spiritually dead. He forgives our sin. He gives hope and peace. He gives us purpose, meets our every need. And that's something worth worshiping for. That God in his grace has acted on our behalf in Jesus Christ is amazing. There's a reason we call the song Amazing Grace. Anyone who's experienced it knows how incredible and surprising it is that 
God would act towards us with favor. It's called amazing grace for a reason. Not amazing me, (laughs) amazing me how great my deeds that obligate God to do good things for me. That's not the song. That's not worth singing. But when God acts towards servants in humble states, broken by sin and systems, it's an amazing thing. Now Mary's words about God's grace, I think can be especially helpful in a conversation with a Catholic friend or a loved one. You know, Catholic tradition holds Mary in such high, high esteem. Uh, It teaches the sinless perfection of Mary, her perpetual virginity. And as such, Mary is worshipped as the mediator between us and Jesus. And so there might be an opportunity for a gentle conversation that God's word, Mary's own words, would inform. So if you were in a conversation with a Catholic friend, you might point out a couple of these things. One, Mary's song is not about what Mary has done. God's the one who's worshipped for his mighty deeds. If we read Mary's song and then we worship Mary as a result, we haven't heard Mary's song. Mary's not worshipping herself and not calling others to worship her. She's worshipping the God whom she has called her Savior. That's really important. Second thing you could talk about is if Mary calls God her Savior, it's because she knows she needs a Savior. Sinless people don't need saviors. Mary sings because the baby she carries is also the one who will rescue her from her own sin, who will bring redemption to her own life. Another thing you might point out is that when Mary says that all generations will call her blessed, she's right. I think sometimes in Protestant life, we've swung the pendulum so far away from Mary as an overreaction to the Catholic stance that we've we've made her almost invisible in the story. She's nothing but a womb. But we should call her blessed. She is blessed by God on high to have this incredible and unique role. But calling Mary blessed and venerating Mary are two very different things. And when Mary says all generations will call me blessed, she isn't saying that all generations will worship her. She's not saying that all generations will now use her as the mediator between God and man. Mary carries the mediator in her womb. She's not the mediator herself. Mary points us to the better way. Mary points us to the one who is sent for this very reason to bring salvation to sinful people and be that mediator between God and man. Those conversations should be very gentle and very slow and over periods of time because those precious doctrines are not let go of easily. But there is a better story to be told, one greater than Mary, to be worshipped and loved and trusted because of his grace this Christmas season. So we worship because of God's grace to us. Here's a second reason we worship. We worship because of God's justice over his enemies. We worship because of God's justice over his enemies. Verses 50 to 53. So we've covered now the first half of Mary's song in which she describes God's mighty deeds and and her place in that. In the second half of her song, she talks about God's actions towards all people. And in that second half, she identifies two groups. She talks about them in parallel. One group would be God's covenant people. The other group would be 
the oppressors of God's people or the enemies of God's purposes. And so I want us to focus first here on what Mary says about God's actions towards the powerful wicked. Mary speaks about these wicked people in verses 51 to 53, and here she describes what the coming of this child means for those who oppose God, His purposes, and His people. So in verse 51, God has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. In verse 52, He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And in verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So again, verse 51, God acts against those who are proud. He scatters them. In verse 52, He acts against rulers. He brings them down from their thrones. In verse 53, God acts against the rich. He sends them away empty, hungry. Now, a quick word on verse 53. Does God hate those who are rich? Absolutely not. Our time in the book of James has shown us that there is room in the family of faith for rich and poor alike. But in Mary's song, she's not speaking about those who are rich in the family of faith. She's speaking of power structures that oppress God's people and act against His purposes. And this is where James agrees with his mother We'll study in a few weeks, James chapter 4, in which he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's singing his mother's song. So here in Mary's song, we have statements from Mary. We have statements of defiance against power structures that oppress God's people that stand opposed to God's purposes and ways. Mary's song is not some quaint, sugary lullaby It is politically charged. It is a rebellious statement in the face of Rome and her rulers. It is a strong, defiant song of rebellion against those who oppress God and His people. And those enemies, the rulers and the people that Mary speaks about, they have names in her historical context. In the century before Christ was born, Mary's world and the whole world around the Mediterranean Sea was full of conflict and turmoil. Rome itself went through a horrible civil war, and in the year 27 B.C., a a ruler named Caesar Augustus puts an end to the civil war, and he takes his seat on the throne as the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, under Augustus, the Roman Empire experiences unprecedented growth. It just expands with incredible force and power. It's a season of history that you studied in school called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. But the Pax Romana is not a peace through negotiation, through treaty. It is peace at the edge of a sword. It is not peace in that there is zero conflict. It is peace in that Rome, their, Rome's army has the power to put down any uprising that happens and to demolish all of her opposition. The Pax Romana is a bloody peace. And Augustus is the one who gets praised for all of this. There's all kinds of brutality that takes place through Augustus and his leaders. One historian named Tacitus wrote about a Roman general named Germanicus. He described his bloody warpath this way. He said, for 50 miles around, 
He wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor gender inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. The Jews of Palestine, where Mary lived, were particularly troublesome to the Roman Empire. There were multiple uprisings over the course of the Pax Romana, and each of these were brought to an end with brutality and slaughter. The Romans often employed a a kind of scorched earth policy. They would kill all the men, enslave the women, keep the infants, and burn not just the villages, but entire countrysides. The point was not to just end the conflict. The point was to send a message to everyone that broken peace would not be tolerated. Uh, In a few years before Jesus was born, there's a town called Sepphoris, which is just four miles west of Nazareth, Mary's hometown. There's an uprising in Sepphoris. A Roman general and his troops are sent there. And they put down the uprising by crucifying, according to historians, 2,000 people on one day. Can you imagine just a, a horizon of crosses and people hanging, screaming, and suffocating from them? It's possible, it's a stretch, but it's possible that Jesus as a child played with children who had no fathers because they were killed on that day by the Romans. Mary writes a song in this historical context. And she says, it's by this child that I carry that God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. She's got Augustus in mind. He has filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty. You and I would be fortified by spending time with Mary's song today. So often God's people look at the powers of the world and we worry and we fret and we think all the power is here, all the power is there, all the power has been taken away from God's people. Or we feel gutted by our own personal struggles, addictions, victimizations, diagnoses, all kinds of difficulties. But Mary makes it clear where power lies and where it does not. She makes it clear that every abuser, every victimizer has a shelf life. God's justice does not miss its mark. And it is a source of comfort and peace for people who have been beat down and hurt and taken advantage of time and time again. With the coming of this child, things are set right in the world once and for all. We worship because of God's grace towards us, and we worship because God, our mighty warrior, is enacting justice on behalf of his people and the holiness of his name. There's a third reason we worship. We worship because of God's faithfulness to his people. So we worship because of God's grace, because of his justice, and finally, because of God's faithfulness to his people. Again, it's in verses 50 through 55. Mary has told us what this child means for those who oppose God, right? It's, this is bad news for them. Justice is coming. But what does this child mean for those who belong to God? In verse 50, he shows them mercy. In verse 52, he lifts up, he exalts the humble. In verse 53, he fills the hungry. In verse 54, he helps his servant Israel. 
In verse 55, he is faithful to his people according to the promise he made to Abraham long ago. All of that comes from this one pregnancy. The central piece to God's action on behalf of his people is his faithfulness. His commitment to the promises he's made, to the covenant he's made with his people from long ago. And in fact, this second half of the song is bookended by statements of God's covenant loyalty. In verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Right, that's a covenant loyalty statement. Generation to generation, God keeps his promises. Verse 54, 55, at the end of this section, he remembers to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So God gave his promise to our fathers. He made a covenant with Abraham, and he's keeping that covenant generation after generation after generation. What about this promise made to Abraham? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 17. It's one place we can find God's promise to him. God says to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So don't miss this. When Mary says God has been faithful to Abraham and all of his descendants forever, she is saying that her baby, Jesus, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That way back in Genesis 17, Christmas was on the horizon. God gave a promise to Abraham. It's fulfilled here in Jesus. Mary is an amazing theologian. She sees things right. She understands the promise fully and its fulfillment in the child she carries. And this song is so incredible. God's surprising grace to Mary by which she is carrying this child is a result of God's faithfulness to his people. He keeps his word. If God promises, God does it. That's always been true and it's true today. That doesn't vaporize in modernity. It doesn't change because the academy tells us something different. This is just who God is in the face of every shifting sand of culture and society. God is always true. And if he is true to Abraham, and if he is true to Mary, will he not be true to you as well? Absolutely he will. So when God promises in Psalm chapter 50, verse 15, call on me in your day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. He keeps his word. When God gives his promise, he follows through on it every time. So when you and I read Mary's song and we see what Christ, the coming of Christ means for those who oppose him or what it means for those who love him, we don't have to wonder, is this really true? Or we don't have to act in a pragmatic sense. I'll pretend it's true just in case. We can know this is true. We can know this is right. And that the God who saves is the God who answers us today. He keeps his word to us. So Mary's song gives us reasons to worship. Right? What are those reasons? She's shown us God's grace, God's justice, God's faithfulness. They all come to us 
through the baby that Mary is carrying. And that, my friends, is rocket fuel for our worship. When we come into this season, divorced from the demands of the busyness, divorced from all the frantic stuff that we've got to keep up with, and we root ourselves in what Christ means, then that gives us a song to sing. You see, the birth of Jesus is the decisive act in human history. He is not a temporary fix to some bigger problem. He is the ultimate answer to sin that marks our decaying world. He's the one who has turned this world upside down, and the question remains to you, has he changed your world? Can you sing Mary's song and say, God is my Savior? That doesn't come just through some cultural morality. That doesn't come through some vague religious practice or just by adding Christianity practices to your Christmas season. It comes through a heart surrender, turning from your sin, turning to Jesus Christ in faith and trusting in him to save you through his death and resurrection. We're worshipers. We are worshipers at Christmas when we understand the significance of Christ's birth and we understand the power of his death and resurrection, and we give everything we are to him, soul and spirit, everything to him. So have you been overjoyed by the grace God has shown you? Have you found rest in God's justice? Have you found peace in God's faithfulness to his promises? If so, then God has put a song in your heart, and we need to sing together. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, we're grateful for a teacher like Mary who points us to you in all your power and all your greatness and all your love and all your compassion for your people. Help us to value what Mary values. The one who has orchestrated all things. She praised you, rejoiced in you, exalted your name. Let us do the same. She praised the one through whom redemption was coming, the child she carried, the boy she would raise, the Savior she would see crucified. God, let us share that with her. Strengthen us by the truths of justice and the way you unfold your justice across this planet. And Lord, lift us as we trust in you. Father, we, we've, we, so many of us have been in church for so many years, such a very long time, and it's easy for us to coast into these weeks just on cruise control without really engaging. But God, let us root ourselves in the meaning of this season, in the meaning of the coming of Christ. I pray that you would bring salvation to my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that can't sing with Mary that you've saved them. God, I pray that you would bring new understanding and new light to those who would esteem Mary in a place that's not biblically appropriate. I know their desire is to love you and to know you, but God, help them to know you through your son and your son alone. And I pray that you would use us to keep Christ in Christmas as we worship, as we serve, as we engage 
as we surrender to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.